On Education is sponsored by Participate, a community learning platform where the world learns together. Later in the episode, we'll hear about one of Participate's communities, Teach the Global Goals, and how you can get involved in its free community learning opportunities with educators around the world. There's a little less nonsense in Canadian education, <laughs> but... Hot take, hot take there. <laughs> Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss how test publishers are making a huge profit from supposed learning loss, take a dive into the proposed curriculum in Alberta, and our guests this week are educators and authors, Jared Cooney Horvath and David Bott. So, you know, every week we talk, and mm-hmm. there's a new game, so I mean, <laughs> there's always a new game <laughs> for me, anyways. Um, I, I'm playing Forza, Forza Seven a mm. lot. Forza Motorsport Seven, so not Horizon, the other one, the the more simulator one. Yeah, and I'm 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 legitimately thinking about buying a steering wheel. <laughs> Those are cool. <laughs> with the gear shift they are and everything cool. or no? With the pedals. Like I, I'm thinking oh, about pedals getting the pedals everything. too. Not oh. the shifter, because I think you can shift on the steering wheel too. Oh. Um yeah, but yeah. but um I'm thinking about getting the pedals and the steering wheel. The mm. thing is though, dude, that I went and looked at uh I went on Reddit mm-hmm. and and, and kind of like read people's thoughts about these steering wheels and and I read um uh someone linked a video to like one of the cause Forza is like a big esport. Like, there's a lot mm. of competition. Like, there are world competitions, world championships for Forza. If you didn't know that, which is no. it's like the Madden, right? Like Madden, sure. there are yep. there are big I, championships. I they don't draw the same numbers in terms of like people packing a stadium, like like League of Legends or Dota. But sure. they're a big deal, and the prize money is is huge still. Um, mm. So it's a it is a big deal, um, and. Those guys are all using controllers, which I found oh. interesting. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to... But it's I'm, more I'm, for the simulation part. The know? immersion. The, yes, the immersion. There you go. That's it what I was cool saying. It would be cool to get my headset on, my, my VR headset, oh. and then then you're really racing, right? Exactly. Yeah, then, then you can have to play Farming Simulator with me. Because I'm sure, it, right. I'm sure it transfers over, and you can still use it. You can drive the tractor with the racing <laughs> I've, wheel. I've mentioned this before. Yes, yeah, so with racing wheel, you're like backing yeah. your combine up, and you drag and race get, it. Yeah, yeah. You can. That'd you be can, funny. It, it got me thinking. It got me thinking. Um, have you ever been into a game so much hmm. that you bought accessories for it? Now I'll admit that I have right up above my head there. Mm-hmm. my thrust and my joystick for flying games oh yeah so i yes. have flying controls too which is obnoxious <laughs> i'm sure and i'm curious have you ever bought anything an accessory specifically for a huh. game or a type of game i have not you haven't I've, gotten I've, to that level yet no eh? no i've i like i said i've watched this one guy on um twitch and on youtube that is a big plays all kinds of driving simulator type of games so there's a 
uh, one where you drive like uh, American Truck Simulator, it's called. And sure. there's also a Euro Truck versus one. And he yeah. does a lot of that. And he does, plays Farming Simulator. And then there's another one where you drive in these off-roads in, um, in Canada and, and Alaska. And huh. you drive these uh, different types of vehicles through treacherous situations. Okay. And then and you have to go, you know, recover, you know, something that broke down or whatever. You have to solve problems basically. But sure. he does it he does it all with with the steering wheels and stick shifts and whatever it might be. So it's interesting. I don't know if I would ever I'm not into a specific game. If Hearthstone had a, a uh, steering wheel or something that I'd play with, I probably would buy it. <laughs> If Hearthstone just, had an accessory that accessory. was required yeah. for gameplay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but or that enhanced gameplay. Exactly. My yeah. other thought was like the po po um Pokemon Go, hmm. you can actually buy like um a keychain sort of thing. Hmm. Like a fob that okay. um that alerts you when you're in an area that has oh. a like that 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 you can that you can open up your app so it alerts you to open up your app it vibrates or something mm. so there's 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 some accessories for pokemon go did you ever <laughs> have like a like a tamagotchi or anything like that i did not Are those the ones that you feed them and stuff like the that little, the little the little, little pets e-pets whatever these little digital pets yes i did not have one <laughs> where you click it three times and it feeds it or whatever it might be i don't kid, i don't think kids have those anymore those no are, no those are they, blast that's from a, the past yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are awesome. Those are the first robots. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it's pet funny. robots. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah. so that's 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 what's happening now. Mm. It's it's Forza. When I'm done this, I'm gonna go race some cars. Nice. Um, so we have been following kind of. Th there's an interesting conversation happening online related to um, the fact that the Biden administration has has sort of approved or required or requested, I don't know the right word to use, mm -hmm. but but is suggesting, I don't know what word to use, but tests, um, standardized tests, like the high stakes tests that we always talk about are going yes. to, are going to proceed this year. And in some cases have already happened. Um, I know that Florida um, just had theirs, I believe last week. So this is an ongoing conversation and, and you know, you don't have to listen to us long to have listened to us long to know our position on it. But the reality is, is that no one benefits from this except for one person, one mm -hmm. constituency, right? Yes. Yes. It definitely is not the students or the teachers or their parents or the communities. Um, as we've always said, it always comes down to the just the amount of money that these testing companies and these book publishers which are now basically the same thing yeah. um, their ceos and the amount of power that they have to be able to persuade um, the government to they throw out these phrases like uh, learning loss and they're able to go ahead and do exactly what we've been talking about, except this year it's even magnified even more because you can you can point to something, you know, obviously this event and say, oh man, 
this is this devastating you know the amount of 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 learning loss that we're going to need we're going to need funds and we're going to need more testing and and um and we'll be able to sell more things to catch these kids up right. to whatever it might be you know whatever that supposed marker was or is um and yeah there's just a ton of money in it right now and actually mike a lot of ed tech companies are reaching out to you know instructional coaches like me or technology directors and basically peddling their products because there's a certain amount of allotted funds that have been allotted to this thing called learning loss and it can be spent on for example summer school or on things like specific programs that you're going to use to you know <laughs> somehow uh, address the situation yes and these companies know that you have that money and they know that it's that it's uh, been earmarked only for that specific purpose and they know that they can get in on it right now so i don't blame them you know but it also is just an unfortunate situation like we're going to be testing next week at the school that i'm at and I just that I I just don't get it. It sucks. It's uh, it's terrible always, but it's terrible especially this year. It's like wow, it's just such a stupid idea. But yeah, it feels like a government decision that has no basis in need, no. or or want, and and is probably probably primarily based on lobbying and donors. Yeah, um, and that's that's, it. that's unfortunate. Um, you know. I get a lot of flack at home occasionally. <laughs> Hashtag segue. <laughs> okay. About um, not talking enough about Canadian education. Okay. Yeah. You know, generally our, our Canadian education system is a little less exciting than, than all the nonsense. There's a, little, <laughs> there's a little less nonsense in Canadian education. But hot take, hot take there. But <laughs> but do I have a doozy for you? Because the 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 the, the Texas of Canada, okay, Alberta, mm. also hot take. Mm. The Texas um, of Canada. I never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Alberta. Any Canadian knows what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, Alberta has um has a government that. You know, if we thought that the Ford government of Ontario is bad, you know, um, the UCP government of Alberta is is much worse, hmm. much worse. Like, like Ford is at least in a lot of cases smart. He's just bad. Okay. Where Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, is neither smart. <laughs> Um, um, they were good. And he's also, he's also very, very just bad. And he just happens to be also bad at his job. Um, and they have developed, you know, as any good government that has giant ideological, you know, positions would have, they decided to do curriculum because, you know, why not indoctrinate our kids too? Mm. Um, so... The, the UCP government has started to rewrite the Alberta curriculum, um, which is great. Sarcasm. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and the the draft Alberta curriculum, in particular for social studies, is a special kind of dumpster fire hmm. that um, I am not going to be able to um, relay super well. I'm actually reaching out to... There's some people doing some great writing and analysis and breakdown of this draft curriculum mm. that I would love to have on the podcast to to really talk about this. But let me just say that, you know, it's basically they've adopted a curriculum that is basically the opposite of... Think about, like, what we know about pedagogy and, and how to teach in particular social studies. Okay. Um, and then think about the opposite of all of that good sound knowledge and, and advice and... and you know, fact-based, research-based thought mm. and do the opposite of that. And that's basically what this curriculum has done. It's, it's a lot of people are saying it's basically a reversion to 20, 30, 40 years ago in terms of the way that curriculum is developed. Wow. Um, moving toward um, concept and competency-based curriculum, um, you know, really relying on the idea of you know core knowledge foundation this is actually like a, a concept of education developed by um ed hirsch is the is the theorist and you if you went to if you did your b.ed 20 or 30 years ago you probably heard about ed hirsch um and the idea that students have to store up knowledge um you know dates and hmm. people and 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 all of these facts and figures before they can even possibly um, comprehend what they've been taught. Mm. So this new curriculum basically is a a barfing up of information. Ooh. Yeah. And and an expectation that students retain all of that. And the irony is that you're gonna listen to Jared um and um and david a little bit later and they're going to talk about the fact that all of this is wrong in in the sense that you, this curriculum um jams kids as young as in grade two or three with so much data like hmm. found what they would call foundational knowledge that there's no possible way that they could learn any of this in a year and even less of a possibility that they could apply it and 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 construct ideas um, about what they've learned, which is actually what you're supposed to do in social studies learning, sure. which is which is take yeah. you know facts that you can easily look up on the internet. You, we don't need to teach kids the date of confederation for Canada. It's you, you go online and you look up the information. Um, what we really want to teach kids is not about who the first prime minister of Canada was, but talk about the, you know, John A. Macdonald and his complexity as a person and, and how that complexity as a person formulated his thoughts and ideas of how he governed the country, mm. including some of the bad things he did. Um, you know, and, and, you know, speaking of that, and I don't want to get into this too much, but that the most egregious act in this curriculum is the complete whitewashing of the curriculum of any sort of um, 
um, you know, race ideas um, and and um, concepts related to to uh, racism and and slavery, which happened. Um, there was definitely a lot of racism in Canada, and you know, um, you know, if how do I say this? The, the great shame of the United States is slavery, okay? The great shame of Canada is what we call residential schools. So if anyone wants to go look up um, something and learn something about Canada that, mm. you know, from our past, um, go learn something about the way that we treated our indigenous people. Um, not right up until not very long ago, the 70s and the 80s in terms of these residential schools. And... This curriculum just completely denies um, the impact that residential schools have had on our indigenous societies. It's mm. it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, and I'd encourage anyone listening who lives in Alberta to do everything you can to uh, oppose the adoption of this curriculum. But at the very least, go and take a look at what it is and 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 take do some reading. And if you need reach out to me and I'll give you some resources. Um, but again, we're hoping to have someone on to talk about it because man, oh man, it's a, it is like the worst kind of dumpster fire because it's actually going to, um, create lasting damage mm. that is just going to have to be undone. The next time the U UCP government gets, you know, booted out of office, which is hopefully soon. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to put it out there because it's a mess and and people should be aware of it. Um, so so, you know, hopefully we'll have someone on to talk about it. But what a what a disaster this is. What is the UCP a conservative parts of a the, very like, yes, the government like, yep. like pretty. So so we've kind of explained like the ideological spectrum of Canada is a little bit interesting. So, so there's a, there's a, a liberal party of Canada, mm -hmm. um, and, and they're, they're pretty centrist center left, but definitely tax center when they need to for elections and stuff like that, that the, they would be to the left of what the United States Democrats would be mm -hmm. for sure though. So, so the Democratic Party of the United States is uh, beyond like the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs of the world, um, which are more ideologically aligned to to the left of Canada. Um, you know, the Liberal Party as a whole is definitely left of the Democrats. Okay. And the the NDP, which is the party I'm a member of, is to the left of the Liberal Party. Okay. Um, by by quite a bit. Um, and then. On the right, there's the Conservative Party of Canada. That's our national, you know, but they are definitely to the left of Republicans mm. by by quite a bit, I would okay. imagine. Um, and then there are um, provincial parties that are definitely more to the right of the Conservative Party of Canada. And the okay. UCP party is definitely to the right of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm. It's a um, it's a it's a it's a mess. Yeah. It, it really is a mess. Um, I would put I would put our provincial conservative party in Ontario uh, also to the right of the conservative party of Canada. So mm. um, also a mess. Yeah. Um, I wonder so, if li yeah, listeners very, out very there, right wing. if the listeners out there too in the United States, they probably have heard similar 
horror stories that probably have been even enacted in many of our states. Uh, yeah. I would say even there was a uh, someone posting a lot of things about a proposal similar to this, a social studies curriculum proposal that at least was being discussed in the state of Minnesota where I'm at. Um, that reminds me of several different things that you're that you're describing here. So I, I, I'm sure it's a unfortunate common movement that is happening, you know, uh, throughout various, you know, obviously in North America, but it's, yeah, this is like you just said, it's not only unfortunate, but just, it's going to be devastating for, for kids. And let me tell you, so we talked a couple weeks ago about whether education is political. Mm. Like if you need a case study in why you need to be politically involved in your education system, this is it. Because I'll tell you, I know, well, there had to have been thousands of teachers that voted for the UCP party in Alberta. And now those thousands of teachers are going to have to end up teaching a curriculum that is, frankly, racist. Mm. And certainly, um, someone said, um, this curriculum recolonizes the curriculum. Mm. You know, so you hear that term decolonize the curriculum all the yeah. time with the idea that, you know, the curriculum that has been designed in much of the Western world is centered around white men in particular. Mm -hmm. And basically someone said that this, this curriculum recolonizes the curriculum. Dang. And that's, that's an astounding setback mm. and it's political. If you were ever confused about whether your job is political yeah. and your actions are political and whether you should remain apolitical or not. Well, I'm sorry, but you don't have a choice mm -mm. because this is what you get when you stay apolitical or when you stay uninformed Agreed. about what your people that you're voting for are going to do when they're in office. Mm. Um, it's, it's really sad. It's really a shame. Um, this interview is really long and I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> We're going to play you the whole thing because it's, fantastic so when we come back um you're gonna hear probably one of the best interviews that we've done on the show it's, it has to be in the top 10 it might even be in my top five um stay tuned when we come back we're gonna be talking to jared cooney horvath and david bot so stay with us it is like a spider web these diverse interconnected spaces help and inspire us to understand, empathize, and take local action in our schools. That's Yahaira Guedes, a facilitator within the Teach the Global Goals community on Participate. The community is home to hundreds of resources, courses, and educators around the world, collaborating on how to bring the United Nations' 17 Sustainable Development Goals into the classroom with our students and as a collective to be a powerful force to achieve the vision of a more peaceful, healthy and equitable world. We'll hear more later in the episode from another community facilitator on why you should get involved. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Jared Cooney Horvath is a neuroscientist, educator, best-selling author, and expert in the field of science of learning. He's lectured at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, and the University of Melbourne, 
and over 250 other schools internationally. He serves as the director of LME Global, a team dedicated to bringing the latest brain and behavioral research to teachers, students, and parents alike. David Bott is the associate director for the Institute of Positive Education. As an expert in applied well-being science, David has supported thousands of educators from hundreds of schools around the world in designing and implementing system-level approaches to well-being. David sits on the Dubai Future Council for Education and has published in academic journals and industry periodicals. He currently serves on the board of the Positive Education Schools Association. Together, they've authored the book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. Welcome to the podcast, Jared and David. Thank you so much for having us on. Jared is uh, a second time guest. And actually, um, we're so happy to have you back and have made a great connection with you. Um, but I don't know if you know that your episode of Uneducation is one of the most all-time downloaded episodes Yay! of Uneducation as well. It's it's well into the thousands of downloads, and that's pretty that's rad. Awesome. So. Well, thank well, It's awesome to be back. We had a good time last time, so hopefully we, we hit the same notes and everyone gets excited about this one too. Rad, absolutely. Well, this book is phenomenal. I used other words before we we got together, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a great book, and and I think um, people are gonna be really interested in what you have to say and, and want to learn where to pick up the book uh, when we're done here. So, Glenn and I have picked a few of these topics. You have ten things, um, yeah. and we'd like to dive deeper into a few of them generally aligning to kind of our interests in in education but before we dig deep into these other few can we go down the list here and get you to give us kind of a two or three sentence rundown of what you're meaning with each of the 10 problems yeah perfect so i'll, I'll kick it off I'll, I'll take the first five so we've got we start out the book with expertise where we take a look at what does it mean to be an expert and here we differentiate between between theory and practice and we learn largely that teachers are the experts when it comes to teaching and once you recognize that then a lot of issues of education might start to kind of fix themselves which then kind of leads into two which is um, the problem of translation this is okay if we recognize that teachers are experts how do we then redefine evidence for teachers by teachers of teachers in the classroom how do we then continue to share in science and research in a laboratory but then figure out what does it mean on the ground practically for us as teachers to use and develop our own kind of practices. This then kind of leads number three then is into grades and this idea of assessment. And here's where we take a look at what is the impact of using letter slash number type grades with students? And then how does that bleed back into their worldview, how people view school, education broader? Um, and then once we <laughs> tackle grades, small topics, as you can tell, right, yeah. we then go into homework and we take a look at what is what does the research then say about homework? What is its best practice? And then how are we using it possibly incorrectly? How can we do it better? Uh, and then five, I think, was was mindset, which is <laughs> the big buzz term for the last decade in education, mindset, growth mindset. Um Turns out it doesn't do what most people think it does. So in chapter five, we take a look at what is the truth behind mindset and what can we meaningfully expect from it? Is it going to be the big grade booster we want? 
or are there other things we need to expect from it? So that's kind of the first half of the book. David, do you want to take the, the next half? Yeah, thanks, Jared. And, and thanks, Mike and Glenn, for, for having us on. It's, it's nice to be with you guys. Uh, chapter six is on 21st century skills. And this chapter firstly explores the origin of these 21st century skills, how they, where they came from, why did we decide on these four specific uh, skills when there are tens or dozens or hundreds of crucial skills that students need to be learning right now. So how did we settle on these specific ones? And then the problem with transferring those skills out of schools into the real world. So all, all the issues associated with really discreetly focusing on little skills like that and the fact that they don't really necessarily transfer effectively out into the real world. Chapter seven is on computers. And this has been a hot topic um, because, uh, you know, Jared, in his own words, is a Luddite. Uh, I, I actually love computers. I'm a bit of a tech guy, probably a little bit like you, Mike. I've got the HomeKit, kind of Apple HomeKit house and stuff. But what we see in the literature here it blew my mind, really. And that is that um, there seems to be no benefit, really, uh, a dem demonstrable benefit of using computers to assist learning. And the problem with computers um, is not the computers themselves, but actually the fact that we we, we try to use them because they're there. And that's what a lot of educators do. Um, mm. And so there's all sorts of science and literature around this really fascinating exploration. Chapter eight is on rewards. And this is an old chestnut, this one, isn't it? It's been around a long time, this discussion, but really we look very carefully at um, how rewards are used as a form of coercion, really, and the downside uh, of that long-term for learning and well-being, particularly. Um, Question, uh, chapter nine is on organization of schools. And that's the, the, the infrastructure kind of stuff, the way we think about setting up our schools, how the kind of the status quo has evolved from historical perspectives that may or may not be useful these days. And we offer some uh, alternatives to organizing schools. And finally, chapter 10 is on purpose. And in my mind, this is probably the most important question of all. This is really asking, why do we do schools? What ultimately is the purpose of schools? And, and what is the narrative we tell ourselves about our role as educators uh, in schools? So, so that's the 10, the 10 chapters and, and kind of the outro really is, is a, our, our uh, offering about how we can harness the real genuine expertise of teachers to, to learn from each other um, to help progress the, the profession forward. So it was a lot of fun writing the book um, and look forward to chatting further with you guys. Hit, hitting all hitting all the sweet spots with a couple hot takes and hot, a couple hot takes in between i love the it the computer the computers one is <laughs> yeah is maybe when we we might have to ask a question about that specifically but right away right off the bat first of all the book is something that we should all read uh listeners we should pick this up uh as soon as mike and i we have had conversations since picking up this book uh through text messages back and forth about just how informative it is but also how it brings to light some of those things that you don't exactly know how to even address address them you know that they're issues but you don't know how to address them and the first one is about experience and in the chapter you state that the only experts in teaching are teachers themselves and then things that we should consider with with that concept which are who are the people in charge of training our teachers and we've talked about this mike and i how We've had a similar experience to what was described as far as in the book, which was our training to become teachers was not that good. And really the most training that ended up happening was on the job, which is not a good thing being that 
you're already in front of kids and you're already getting paid to do that, you know, that job. You're already expected to be at least somewhat competent as far as in that. The second thing there, um, that the concept of veteran teachers outperforming new teachers and we should be keeping them in roles as, for example, I think Mike talks about this all the time as mentors or as lead teachers versus pushing them into administration, which happens all the time. And then finally, uh, the concept of professional control. And again, Mike and I address this on the podcast all the time, which is letting the teachers internally define and generate and enforce the best practices, which are currently controlled, at least in the United States, and I think similarly in Canada, by outside forces. So they're talking about like politicians, um, school board community members that may not have any expertise as far as in uh, education itself, or the worst one of all, testing companies, <laughs> which we, which really drive us insane. Um, so as I, I read through this and we were discussing this, Mike and I, I really wanted to share with the audience is what do you guys think are some first steps towards solving the problem in education, specifically with experience? Uh, and I, I brought up some different things, so I, I don't know who wants to go ahead and speak first. No, I love it. I'll, I'll jump in. So I think it's a good thing to, to recognize. So we're, when we're talking about expertise, we're being very specific. Is for some reason the world has conflated what we'll call science of learning with the craft of teaching. The idea that mm. learning is a product. That's what people are doing. We somehow just assume that teaching then is the same thing. If you know how people learn, then you're going to be an incredible teacher. And all you've got to do is, is spend a couple of days at university. So everyone at university, what we do research on is science of learning. How do human beings learn? How does memory work? How do we take in information, embody it, use it? Ask any of those people who do science of learning research to go teach a class. Whoa, the vast majority of them are absolutely horrible. Go sit through one of their lectures and you'll see real fast that knowing about learning is very different than knowing how to teach. Mm -hmm. And then flip it around. I've had incredible teachers in my lifetime that if you ask them, what are the mechanisms of learning? They'd say, I have no clue what you're talking about, but I can teach. So you start to recognize that craft, the practice of teaching is very different and dissociable from the science of learning. Unfortunately, historically, we use science of learning to train teachers. We use theory to drive practice. Here's Piaget. And you guys had to learn all this stuff. Piaget, yes. Vygotsky. How many times mm -hmm. have you ever used Piaget in your practice? Answer, <laughs> zero. No one's ever used. It's a wonderful theory. It's a wonderful learning theory. It doesn't tell us a thing about what to do with year five math students on a Friday afternoon who are struggling to make it to the end of the day. So once we recognize we separate the two, then we start to say, oh, yeah, what? is the craft of teaching who knows that best and that is teachers themselves so now we start to play with kind of what you were talking about glenn i think the first two big ones are one training of course include theory but training has to become wildly practical when i'm training mm. to be a um so all crafts things here in, in australia we call them tafe fields so crafts are things like electric electronics or um, building construction you want to learn how to do this you don't go study the history of architecture. You go build something with people who know how to build. And that's how teaching should be trained. Go find a really good teacher, crash with them for a couple of years, and trust me, you're going to be a very good teacher at the end of that, more so than reading and points. books and in a classroom. An apprenticeship. Yeah. Bingo. And so if you combine those two kind of concepts of, of right. yeah, let's, let's make 
the the training of teachers more practical who then becomes the best at practice it's people who have expertise requires time to develop minimum Mm -hmm. of five years some say up to 20 years to even become what you'd call an expert at teaching who's been doing that those are the teachers that have been in the room already let them drive the training of the next generation so the next generation of teachers stand on the shoulders of everyone who came before them rather than simply reinventing the wheel every time they step into the classroom what do you think david I love the the concept of apprenticeship, Mike, is um, I think absolutely essential for the reasons Jared's outlined. And, you know, I think one of the one of the disappointing parts of education is that, um, you know, I've worked with Jared now for five years, um, but I've never seen Jared teach in the classroom. I've never seen Jared at his best. And and I, I as much as I'd like to, I, I can't. There's no recording of that. There's no evidence of that. I guess I could go and ask his students what was it like, but but teaching's strange in that we 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 learn about it, you know, and then we close the door and we have our twenty five or thirty students, and it's this kind of enclosed enclave where um, no one will ever really see um, your mistakes, which is nice, maybe, but no one will also ever see you at your best, and and there's no way to really, in in any formal systemic way, capture great teaching you know which is a, is a real shame and you know I, I think the concept of apprenticeship really tries to harness that and you know I, I think I, I'm also seeing an example of this Mike and we've kind of talked about sports a little bit um, before this conversation but I've got a five-year-old son Hudson um, and he's loving watching the, the Melbourne Demons is our AFL uh, Aussie rules Australian rules football team that we love and he's loving watching um, elite sports on TV right and then as soon as the game finishes, he goes outside and tries to replicate what he's seeing mm-hmm. on the football field. So he, he takes mm-hmm. these big kind mm-hmm. of catches and he's running around kind of <laughs> docking and weaving with the it's ball. Awesome. And he's, he's clearly learning from watching expert footballers play. But he yeah. will never learn to become a teacher in the same way because there's no way to see that, which is, you know, and so I think Jared and I are passionate about trying to create some system whereby we can watch Mike or Glenn or Jared or whoever it is at their best and allow rookie teachers to observe world-class practice, you know, to, to capture that. So we're not, as Jared said, recreating the wheel each time. And you pull the two together too. I'm thinking that kind of extends it out is... It- so go back to what you were talking about earlier, Glenn, about who's driving most of the show are outside forces. So we, I was at a meeting, would have been, gosh, eight years ago here where it was a curriculum meeting. And yep, lawyers were there. Politicians were there. Researchers were there. Neuroscientists were there. Not a single teacher in the house. And when I asked them, I said, why are there no teachers present? They hemmed and hawed and had a discussion. They came back with the idea that teachers are merely levers. Right, Kids are the customer, which is a scary thing to consider. Uh, We are the designers and teachers are simply levers that we move to achieve the goals with our customers. That's horrible. (laughs) If if the only interface you have with your customer, and again, why we use word customer for students, I have no clue. But why you would – the only interface you have with them, you don't want to consider their opinion. You don't want to consider what they do. You don't want to consider their expertise. Yeah, they're just machines, kind of cogs that we pull, move around. So I've been, we thought a lot about this, David and I, and we, we reckon the only way to get teachers represented, teachers are the ones who should be driving that discussion, let alone just not even being present. They should be the majority. How do we get them there is the one thing they're lacking is a consistent body of knowledge. 
is a system by which they document and share what it is they do. If you go back around that room, everyone there, lawyers, have hundreds of years of stuff that they can say, you want to understand my decision? Here's the last hundred years of law. Go read that, and then mm. you'll make sense of what I'm doing right now. Neuroscience, you want to understand? Here's a bookshelf of stuff from the last hundred years. Read that, and you'll start where I'm at now. Teaching, we have nothing to point to to say that's what we've been doing the last hundred years. We've been doing it. We just haven't been documenting it in a way that shows the rest of the world. Yeah, we're not just twiddling our thumbs in a classroom. We're doing stuff. So until we can come up with a way to systematically document and share together what it is we do on our own terms, that's when we build the body of knowledge. That's when we'll be able to push back and say, all right. Our turn now. Let the teachers not only be a part of this conversation, but guide this conversation because they're the only ones who know what the heck is actually going on. So, Jared and David, a follow-up question on that's because of my specific role and kind of a movement that has been happening, as, at least in the United States, that I felt has been happening probably for sure within the last five years, but maybe even within the last 10 years, which is moving teachers like myself out of the classroom and then becoming instructional coaches. Um, have you found research that says that that is that can be a positive practice? Because at times we feel uber frustrated as instructional coaches yeah. because what ends up happening is other things end up taking our our time as far as within the system. And some of it it has to do with your one of your top ten lists, which is this concept of computers. So computers and instructional coaching somehow got smashed together in the United States and we became kind of these IT people, but yet we're still helping with instructional coaching. And then the mixture of those things has just become kind of convoluted. Yeah. Uh, so we've always wondered, does it, does it pay off, number one, uh, to pull us out of the classroom? And number two, have you guys seen in research some examples, you know, that it, it can be successful? Yeah, the coaching model is is it's relatively new. It's been around for about a decade. So the, but the research coming out with it is very strong in that. Yep. If you've got an effective teaching instructional coach and typically one that works either in your school or in your district. So yep. rather than say. I've got some guy in the UK who just talks to me. But no, if you've got someone who knows your system very well in your goals for your school, especially, that's when you can really see huge benefits, especially to what's weird is you'll see with younger teachers, you'll see boosts to their performance. With the older teachers, what you see is, is a more it's because it's hard to say they're boosting their performance. It's a change in their performance. They're more apt to try different things, which is mm. really good. Once we hit a certain stage, like a plateau of kind of, I'm doing good enough, some people tend to just stay with that. For the next 30 years, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. It's good enough, sweet. But through the coaching model, that's where you get to see people push past that and say, all right, well, maybe I will try a new technique. Maybe I'll try something new. Um, the trick, though, is is to recognize is, yeah, it's, it's, it's emerging and it works when there's the coaching model in place the where when you take effective teachers out and you put them as administrators who kind of oversee the coaching then it's a it's a hit or miss that is it, okay. if you put them as principals that are like yeah i'm going to make the framework by which you can go experience coaching instead of being a coach myself it's not always the the greatest thing so it's that really kind of specific here's my knowledge base let me pass that along to you 
And if I can just add, add Glenn, um, and we won't we won't dive into the computer thing yet because we'll, we'll open a can of worms for for maybe later or, or, or not. But um, you know, both Jared and I are fans of um, Anders Ericsson's work out of Florida State, and all all of the work he's done on um, you know on, on high performance and the the the, the learning pathways to um, elite and high performance, and uh, clearly coaching, having a, an outstanding coach in any field is beneficial and generally teachers don't have that and I think that's one of the reasons why um, mm. I plateaued as, as Jared explained after five or six years of being in the classroom my, my performance generally plateaued I think overall I think uh, I was fine I was a good teacher I was well liked got good grades but I, I didn't get any better in year seven eight nine ten eleven twelve than I'd had done in the previous five years so and I think a big part of that um, is because I didn't have a Glenn uh, who was better than me, um, helping me develop micro skills that I'm working on, giving me immediate feedback, allowing me to refine my craft. You know, so we don't really have these coaches in the same way that many other crafts or many other professions do. And so I think absolutely that is a missing element. I think the, the, the in this, that I, I need someone better than me that can guide my next evolution throughout my career, not just the first five or 10 years, but into years. 45 and 50 as well you know as we evolve through you know and i think the last thing i'll say on this is i think that's an essential component of professionalism you know i think it's part of the definition of professionalism is the desire to uh to grow to to seek growth where regardless of where you are you should be wanting to get better every single day every single lesson should be better you should be you know attempting to be better than the one yesterday and i think that's a defining characteristic of professionalism but that requires someone guiding us through the process otherwise we're kind of flying blind I wonder if that wasn't the entire or the original thought of having a principal would have been kind of more a coach role. Mm. And then only in the last hundred plus years, I mean, I don't know, I'm just kind of spitballing here yeah. that all the administration stuff and the kind of business bureaucracy took over to the point where now as a principal, even though you could be coaching, you're simply, you don't have the time anymore because you're doing so much other you're stuff. A CEO. I mean, what is it? You all, what are you talking about, David? Like the list of all the stuff that teachers and administrators have to do is just yeah. absurd these days. Well, I, yeah. I think more and more um, principals um, start off being a, a, an excellent English teacher and they evolve through middle management and they end up being a CEO of a large organization. You know, the, the school that I work with, the school that, you know, we, Jared and I, many of the schools we work with have, you know, 60, 70, 80, $100 million turnovers each year. You know, and so you're, as a principal, you're running a huge kind of large organization. There's no chance you're going to be able to provide guidance to the third year out, you know, third, fourth grade teacher um, and help her with her practice. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we see one of the big challenges of, uh, principalship, but also of middle management or sort of middle leadership in schools is, and e even with rookie teachers, is that teaching, we call it a teacher, that's a role, that's on your business card or on your email signature, but actually teaching isn't really all you do. You're also a marketing assistant or marketing executive. You're also a bureaucrat. You're also a, an accountant managing budgets. You're also a first aid medic. You know, as a teacher, it's such a bundled role that there's very little, there's not a, not a great opportunity to practice your craft. Even if you've got a Glenn guiding you as an instructive coach to get better and better, there's, we do so much other stuff. And, you know, so one of the things we're seeing at some really progressive schools, especially during this hybrid learning thing is the unbundling 
the role of a teacher. You know, we take a great teacher and we say, wow, you are doing amazing in teaching 12th grade physics. Um, don't worry about the budget. Don't worry about designing the next curriculum. Don't you worry about meeting with parents. Don't you worry about political bureaucratic stuff. You go teach for six hours a day because you're an amazing teacher. Roger Federer is an amazing tennis player. He plays tennis all day. You're an amazing tennis player. You go teach all day, you know? And so we're, the unbundling the role of the teacher is, I think, essential going forward as well. It's funny. I was just thinking, the, the pre- I, I've been in one of these high schools. I, I was thinking about this high school I was in in Austin, Texas. Um, it was it was a giant campus. I mean, the, the principal of a high school in Austin, Texas would oversee hundreds of staff and thousands of students, yeah. including multiple divisions that have their own little staff ecosystems. Like the football program has a staff of probably 20 at a high school in, mm-hmm. in Texas. So uh, I, I totally get what you're, what you're coming from there in terms of the, the principal of a school, you know, not necessarily being an instructional coach, that's for sure. So, so let's talk about homework and opportunity cost. Um, I love that you focus on the concept of opportunity costs it's it's just perfect for my wonky brain um for anyone out there that hasn't taken any sort of kind of entry level economics course um we'll give you like the the so the op- an opportunity cost is the concept of the value of the option that you do not choose that is the definition of opportunity cost so when we talk about homework and opportunity costs, let's let's lay it out. What are students missing out on when they end up doing homework all night? What is the real opportunity cost that you think they're they're missing? And and what is um the balance or is there a balance that can or should be found between homework and the other paths not taken? Yeah. Let, let, I'll, I'll go first, Jared, just to, uh, with, with one angle. I think that's, that's a great question, Mike. And I think uh, there's some really fascinating ways to think about this. Um, you know, the, the chapter kind of starts by saying, you know, in Australia, this year in Australia, um, there will be 350 million hours of homework set collectively for Australian students, right? Um, and Australia is a relatively small country, as you know, in terms of population. Mm. But that's a lot of human life we're consuming getting students to do homework. And depending on where you look, there is some, arguably some benefit to some students of doing that homework. But we also see that 90% of Australians are not, 90% of young Australians, Australian students are not meeting exercise guidelines set by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. So we're not meeting these basic physical guidelines uh so instead of students running around playing football hanging out with their friends maybe playing music maybe going to drama class maybe reading with mum and dad or creating cooking with nono or whatever they're doing 350 million hours of that is being consumed in australia by doing homework so that's a huge number of hours and you've got those two stats in terms of physical health is just one way to compare these two we have to be, have a very clear justification for homework if we are consuming that amount of life 
there has to be some very strong evidence, I would have thought, um, to be doing that kind of thing with students. Now, I'll hand over to Jared in a sec to talk about the, the kind of the distinction, particularly between primary elementary students and middle school students and, and high school students. You know, this question, Mike, I think we really have to divide the different age groups because the literature is pretty clear on this. Um, but, you know, I think we have to think about the physical well-being, the social well-being, the emotional well-being um, of our of our students and you know and, and our, our starting philosophy really should be that um, homework or things things that are happening at home I think in a social family environment we should not be impinging on that as schools unless there's a very very solid justification for taking that time away from family friends sports clubs music whatever it is so let's let's really assume we should not be impinging on that as educators unless we can have very very strong justification for doing for doing it and I'll hand over to Jared maybe to, to talk a little further. It's interesting. I was thinking about that the other day is where does this modern push from work into the household? So as adults, our work is bleeding more and more and more and more. And I don't mean from COVID. I mean, before that, you would work your eight hour workday, but then you'd also do a couple hours of homework and you'd have to be able to answer your phone at nine. And you know how this stuff goes. Where did that come from? Oh, boy. Perhaps it comes from an entire culture of homework, a concept whereby as kids, we're reared Whereby, yeah, you've got six hours of work, but that's just prepping you. Your real work comes when you go home. Because apparently, I don't have enough time in my one hour to teach you anything. What I have time for is to get you ready to learn. And then you've got to go try and do that stuff yourself. Sorry about that. So what you start to see these opportunity costs, like like David was saying, and I think they're really important, is <laughs> let's just talk about learning. Okay, so if homework boosts learning, now we can start to say, okay, there's a benefit to homework. Congratulations. Let's assume then, then, that learning doesn't happen anywhere else. By, by assuming that homework is the only place you're going to get learning, that by playing guitar with your friends, you're not going to do any learning. By playing a sport, you're not going to do any learning. Of course, we all know that's absolutely asinine. Doing other things is going to help us learn as well. So already you have this kind of distinction where it's, it's not the only way to learn. Things that kids do are going to help them learn regardless of whether or not they're reading a book. It's, it's all good when it comes to learning. So now we get to say, what kind of learning do we want? So if we just take a look at bookish learning, academic learning and outcomes, from for primary year students, the impact of homework on academic outcomes, learning achievement is zero. There's just nothing there. The more homework a young kid does, congratulations, that's going to do nothing to their schoolwork. Okay. The reason for this, we think, is largely because, A, Kids don't know how to do homework. They don't know their own thinking. They don't know their own patterns well enough to take control of it. So all they end up doing is focusing on things that they're already good at. And more importantly, the only kids who benefit from homework at that age are kids whose parents do it with them. Now, that's awesome. Like, I'd love it. If my parent, if I had every parent guaranteed to read for an hour with their kids every night, I'd say, just do that. Read with your parents. Go to town. Problem is, I can't guarantee every kid has that opportunity. So now what you've right. already done is you've just drawn a pretty stark divide between parents willing to chip in and parents who don't have the ability because they're working three jobs to chip in. And now your kid's going to suffer because we even made homework essential and you didn't do it with them. They're not learning. Sorry. So you can assume homework at in primary levels, waste of time and actually going to divide people. Middle school gets a little bit better. High school is where you see your biggest benefit of homework in terms of learning and academic outcomes. Um, but it's 
what you call an, an inverted U curve. So it's not a linear thing. More homework equals better performance. What you tend to find is at about 60 minutes of homework a night, the benefit of homework starts to to plateau and then it actually flips that once you're doing homework for more than 90 minutes a night you're actually learning less than people who are doing less than you so if you do homework for three hours a night you'll learn about the same amount of someone who did 15 minutes that night and this is just a learning mechanism the brain cannot learn wild amounts of information incredibly fast we just there's a limit to what we can do each day right so now we start to say okay opportunity cost if we start to pull it back especially for older kids to about an hour a night now, what does that free them up to do? Now, can they really focus on other things that might be more personally, emotionally, socially relevant to them to help them grow in those aspects so we're not only thinking about school? And what's interesting, and I, didn't, I don't know if I've told you this yet, David. We haven't talked in a while. We, we, we just got off an Easter break here, so we haven't it's – been, it's, it's been a, it's some time off. But um, I was talking to a teacher a while ago, and she said, I absolutely – my default position is no homework. It's just – and especially at our school, we say it's it's zero homework. If we do homework, we have a very clear purpose and reason for it. Something went haywire or there's one thing we really need to achieve and we're going to do it that way. And you ask her why and she, she made a very good point. Human beings, you cannot learn six hours of stuff in a day. You can't. We have a max of about three to three and a half hours we can learn of new stuff a day. We can practice longer than that but when it comes to new learning, can't do it. So if you've got school for six hours in a day, you've pretty much taxed out all your learning. You do not have any more juice. And if you can't learn a language, you have one hour of language learning a day. Let's say you're taking Spanish. If you can't learn in one hour what you're going to learn, trust me, an extra 30 minutes at night ain't going to do it for you. Once She said, once I realize that class time is meant for learning and we lock it down from bell to bell, we are learning. I don't need homework. Homework is what I used to use to avoid having to teach. And once you and she said, once I recognize that, we all started gathering around this idea that no, in our hour of learning during a day, that's it. You don't do math more than an hour a day. No human being, unless they're passionate about math, can really handle more than that. And then homework starts to become irrelevant. So, and you know what's interesting is that we just um, had a conversation about apprenticeship and and teachers, but. You know, in your book, you actually say at a, at a practical level, several analyses have been have demonstrated that homework largely boosts learning when it's a when it is task based and focused on the practice slash rehearsal of previously learned knowledge or skills. Whenever homework introduces novel material, requires deep consideration, or takes a project based approach, learning diminishes significantly. I I copied that um, before we were even talking because it stood out to me, and we just had this conversation about teachers and this idea that they should learn more as apprentices. Well, the idea that students should, you know, so, and I actually have a really good example of this. Um, when I taught computer science, one of my, um, you know, areas, um, one of my units of study was graphic design and photography. And so I would teach students about the rule of thirds for example, right? And so you, you teach students about rule of thirds. And yeah, I assigned homework, but the homework was now go take pictures. Go practice 
the what you've no. learned by by taking pictures you don't have to show me them necessarily i don't have i'm not going to assess them i'm not i'm not grading them you don't have to hand them in um or anything like that i just want you to go and take pictures so when you have five minutes of time if you have 10 minutes of time go outside in your backyard and snap a couple pictures and try to use the ideas that you've learned and i think that that's what you're talking about the idea that you can take this opportunity for homework make it smaller um and make it practical make it yeah. useful and related a, to what they've learned a key thing with with uh, homework you're spot on is is practice is is key is once we do it now, this opens a whole can of worms on flipped learning, the idea that, hey, I want you to go do some learning and tomorrow. We'll talk about it. I'll, I can talk about that in a second, but you can probably guess that that's probably not great. And it never has been. No offense. Flipped learning isn't new. Our teachers used to make us go read a chapter and we'll discuss it tomorrow. That's flipped learning. And I don't know about y'all. I never, never in a million years read anything my teachers asked me to read because I knew they'd have to teach it to me the next day. Why would I waste my time? So... But let's take that. Once we keep re or homework practice-based, we know what we're good at. We know what we're doing. You've already got this information. Let's drill it. Let's practice it. Now you hit a really key aspect of practice, which is frequency is more important than quantity. Frequency of practice, a little bit every night, is going to be better than an hour in one night. So you're spot on. Is if I Give me 10 minutes of drilling some math problems. Give me 10 minutes of taking photos outside. Give me 10 minutes of actually play some musical scales for me. That's it. Now go about your business. All you need to do is bring it online. Frequency more important than quantity. And we see the same thing across all forms of homework with, with students. And that's how you make it work is when you recognize that it's task-based, it's practice-based, it's not new-based, then you can get away with saying, just give me 10 minutes tonight, then go about your business. That's all you need to do. So we've talked homework here. Let's talk about one of the hottest topics that dominates headlines, professional development. It's consumed my life in many ways, <laughs> both on the podcast and in my practical at when I was actually teaching and now as an instructional coach, it's the concept of assessment. Uh, and in the chapter, you emphasize that the current system is one of reify, quantify and rank. Can you tell us more about this and maybe offer some suggestions on how we may best be able to move past the current systems of assessment? Um, because it feels like more than just saying, we're gonna change the standards-based grading. Cause that's a huge discussion here and a lot of investment of time and effort into this concept. The, the biggest fear for me, and now that I have some experts sitting in front of you is that we're gonna just do the old bait and switch, which is we have this thing that's bad and we know it's bad but then we have this other thing and we're really just gonna just switch it but really it's gonna end up being the exact same thing with a different name and some different numbers uh, associated with it which really freaks me out uh, for many reasons first of all it's just the investment of time that we put into these movements and then they don't end up being fruitful in the end because we really didn't ever real make a real change. Um, gotta, I don't know what kind of question this is, but yeah. <laughs> you know, you're spot on. I, it's funny. Yeah. We're, we're, we're having that same exact conversation here, Glenn. So I think it's, you're not alone is in Australia. They're, they want to really move into that 21st century skills based model where 
they can assure and they're talking about like micro credentialing creativity and critical thinking and all these things and the, and their their argument for it is exactly what you're saying it's we're changing the, the status quo we're making it more equitable for everyone and we don't we don't we want a holistic view of kids and as soon as they made all these wonderful decisions the next question they say is how do we measure this and once they hit that wall it's a bait and switch we're going to get take it's going to be the same exact grading system we have now just for creativity instead. And then kids are going to be ranked beyond that. So how do it's, if you want to change a system, you have to go back to the base philosophy. What is going on? So let's go back. The system we use now is one of reify, quantify, rank. Reify says, how do I take something that's not real? That's a concept. That's an ethereal and make it real, make it a noun. Because if I, if it's not an actual thing, then we're just talking fluff. So grades, let's, let's talk about intelligence intelligence isn't a thing intelligence is just a word we have invented that means millions of things to whoever you're talking to but no for it to be important we have to reify it it has to be a noun same thing i can point to like a carrot in your garden or your spleen that is your intelligence once i've reified it now i can quantify it i can assign a value to it that kid is a seven out of ten on intelligence that kid has a three out of ten on intelligence why would I quantify it? Because then I can rank it and I can seemingly objectively say that kid is smarter than that kid. The system we use is reify, quantify, rank. And the system we're going to move into is reify, quantify, rank. It's instead of intelligence, we're going to use the term creativity and we're mm. going to go through the same exact cycle. Now, the, the interesting thing is you start to ask, well, what are we ranking kids for? Who, and, and, and I'll let David kind of tackle the deeper concept there but there's only one answer it ain't for us it's not for learning no no kid by being ranked has ever learned a thing other than oh i'm stupider than that kid over there or hey i'm smarter than that kid there's no inherent information in there that drives my learning forward that makes me a better different person so who are we ranking for universities and why are universities ranking jobs and that's it. When you use this type of grading system, it has one outcome. It's we're making it easier for universities to sort through our students. And why hmm. would universities do it? Because it makes it easier for Google to sort through their graduates. There's hmm. no there's no counter argument to that. There's no wider argument. And, and, and there's absolutely zero argument from a learning aspect that this has any impact on learning development whatsoever. But David, I'll throw it, throw it over to you to have a think. Yeah, I, I think I... I, I push back a tiny bit and i think actually there there is someone else who kind of wins here maybe and that the latin phrase we use in the book is qi bono which literally means you know who wins and it, it's a it's a wonderful question to ask i think at various times in our life but certainly when we're professionals being paid well to nurture the lives of children we need to ask this question you know who wins i i think grades um also a very powerful tool for lazy teachers um, because they are in a very efficient way to drive motivation. If, if you can't inspire children, if you can't get them passionate about their learning, 
fear is a very powerful motivator and grades are a form of fear, right? It's a, it's kind of a, a, a we create this false scarcity, a, a scarcity model around grades. And, you know, a, a lazy educator can say to a child, look, if you don't do your practice, if you don't come to class, if you don't engage in the algebra studies, then we're going to rank you at the end of the, the week and you're going to be down the rankings. You're going to see and mum and dad will be disappointed and the teacher will be disappointed and you won't get into Harvard and you'll fail in life. And we use fear to drive as a powerful motivational tool. So the lazy teacher can also win, you know, I, I think with this as well as Google, as well as universities. But I think, uh, you, know, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're being a bit facetious and we're using pretty extreme examples, but that's the, that's the reality that we, we really only have two motivational tools uh, available to us. One is love and inspiration. The other is fear. Right? They're only really the two motivational tools that teachers have available. And I, th I think, um, you know, John Hagel, we write about this in the book, but John Hagel calls grades kind of part of a masculine archetype. It's kind of this concept of creating artificial scarcity, um, which is a f using fear to drive humans. Um, the other option is a more feminine archetype, which is this abundance mindset that says we, we don't have to create an artificial scarce number of A grades we can all learn um, and if we start using inspiration and teamwork and hope and love and joy and um, compassion as the motivating forces we don't need to use this fear as an option so but that's harder work you know the, the thing about grades is they're highly efficient as a fear-based motivational tool the other option is much harder work and requires us to really think and to really engage in our practice our pedagogy engage our our mentors our coaches and really think through from from a new a kind of a new perspective you know that is, is harder for sure and as you were talking about glenn is, is now this leads to the question of, okay what can come next how do we avoid falling right back down into that pit dressing it up in new clothing but then we're back into reify quantify rank which is exactly what's happening now there are ideas out there but i always like to think this is where go back to what we were talking about earlier teacher expertise. Who are the right people to make the decisions? When it comes to assessment, when it comes to actually organizing and driving learning, who are the people to make that decision? I, as an outsider, can come up with a million ways other than grading, but I don't have no clue if that's actually going to make sense on the ground, if that's going to be meaningful for a teacher. So that's where I think a good spot to start opening it up. Once we recognize teacher expertise and get them driving this conversation, we're going to find the answer to assessment and to development from them. And when you do start to talk to them, what you, you tend to find is is kind of a variation on two themes. At least this is in my experience is one, we don't need it at all, at all. There's no reason if, if university doesn't know how to sort through kids, why should I change my career to help Harvard figure out which kids to accept? Mm -hmm. I don't care. That's your dime. That's your time. Why would I spend my K through 12 education helping you when I'm not seeing an ounce mm. of your money? I'm not seeing an ounce of your favor. Get the heck out of my classroom. I'm going to teach my kids. In which case, and we saw it during COVID, universities would have to adapt. And they did wickedly fast. When SATs were no longer a thing, it took all of two months for most universities to say, okay, we don't need them anymore. We're just going to write us a bonus essay. And what happened was schools got boosts in the number of kids who applied kids who otherwise would never have applied to harvard now had a freaking chance why because they got to make their own portfolio there was no longer a thing that said i'm this much better than my peers there was just a here's me here's my ideas do you like me and so that's why when teachers focus on learning on development of students 
Their needs never be a grade, and everything they do is an assessment. Anytime a kid opens his or her mouth, they're showing us what they know. Everything becomes an assessment, just not one with a letter or a rank at the end of it. The other variation theme then of variation one is let's just do nothing. Let's just teach kids. And when they're ready, we say, okay, you're ready to go out into the world. Boom. The other is kind of this idea of a binary of rather than rank, there's just a set limit where once you get above that limit, we say, yes, you've ticked a box. Congratulations. You're ready for the next stage. And that's it. There is no hierarchy beyond a binary. Yes or no. Yeah. If you're a no, congratulations. You're going to do it again next month. If you're a okay. yes, congratulations. You're, you're moving on to the next thing. And this starts to kind of strip beyond grades where now you might have a grade three and a grade four kid in the same class learning something new. And that's fine because they're just waiting to tick the box. And the idea of then graduating, if you think about it, that's university. You graduate university. Nobody has ever asked me what my university grades were ever. No. All they did was they asked, do you have a degree? It's a binary system. Did you graduate? Yes, I did. Congratulations. Same thing with, with, with high school. Just make it a binary system. Do you have a degree? That's enough. Everything else beyond that is just noise. Hmm. Uh, I had a couple of comments. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mike wrote a blog post last week that kind of, it's not specifically about grades or assessments, but it's about numbers in general. And I was going to tell Mike that that reminded me of, and this conversation reminds me of a song by Weezer that they just put out. <laughs> and it's called Numbers. And Basically, it says there's always a number that'll make you feel bad about yourself. That's the first lyric that it says there. And then in the chorus, it says numbers are out to get you. And it keeps talking about basically how we, we, we try to measure up, but we're not measuring up to ourselves. We're measuring ourselves against someone else. And we have the system in every space. Like Mike was talking about it, I think more in a in the workplace world or in social media or in YouTube view counts or how many people are on your, are watching your stream or whatever it might be. And we're all, we have these things that are sometimes associated with our performance in our jobs, you know, as far as like whether or not we're going to do that, but why are we building these systems starting in grade school where we te we're teaching this already? We're saying, Hey, you always have to compare yourself to this mm -hmm. other person who's better than you at x athletics uh and math and science and whatever else it might be so i do love that entire concept and the conversation too I, all these conversations are are fantastic you start to see that quantify thing is and it's when you bring back reify because a lot of people say well yeah quantify that's objective that's how we know things we count things but when you remember that no we start with reification some things are very easily quantifiable your height that's fine. Your weight. Sweet. That's an actual thing. The number of lungs you have in your body. I got you there. Some things we shouldn't be counting. Uh, creativity. Critical thinking ability. And if, if it sounds like we should be counting these, that's just um, a remnant of our new scientific worldview. Where science, by in order to do academic research, we have to quantify. Otherwise, we can't run our stats. Mm. But there's <laughs> that's assuming that academic research is the only source of knowledge in the world. And a lot of people go, well, what else is there? Law. Law doesn't count anything. Law uses precedent. So long as some judge said it 20 years ago, it's still viable today. There ain't no number attached to that. There's no t-test statistics. 
Anthropologists use stories and myths. They go and talk to ancient cultures and say, what do you guys think? Nobody asks them to count. They don't say, well, they have six myths that include this god. Therefore, it's a more important god. Hell no. Just tell <laughs> the myth is the information. That is the evidence. So there is, we have a, a and I haven't heard the new Weezer song, so I have to go. I don't even know they were still making music. I, I hadn't either, interestingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> I was singing the other it's day so at good. Pinkerton. So that good. album, that was me in yeah. high school. And if they're still yeah. going, God bless them. You, you I, wanted to, I wanted to mention the irony is, is that my blog post was actually about the inability to quantify the 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 value of a community based on the numbers that the community generates yes. mm. like like the metrics of your twitter followers does not yeah. a community make mm. the, your your number of twitter followers your your you know the amount of people that watch you on twitch does not a community make mm. and and i end it by saying that you know there's no community of practice without community um, <laughs> and there's no community without relationships um, because I, I was talking about, you know, a focus on metrics. It, the the ironies are all over the place with this with this conversation. So, so but that's easy. Uh, how yeah. easy are numbers? It's easy to slide into it, yeah. right? So let let me add just a little well being angle that we've we've battled with for ten years um, in the well being space, and that is, in a school, um, unfortunately, uh, what we measure matters. Right, and so you start measuring math grades, or you start measuring attendance, or you start measuring whatever. We there's an instant kind of unavoidable focus that goes to those metrics, right? And we can't help looking at those Twitch metrics, Mike. And you know, there's kind of this powerful attraction to those metrics. We, we've had a really interesting yeah. discussion for ten years about well-being. Should we be measuring well-being? Should we be reifying hope, or kindness, or gratitude, or love? Um, and obviously, the obvious answer to me is no. But then the obvious answer is yes, because as soon as we start measuring gratitude, we start focusing on it more and more funding comes in and people are more aware of it. So there's this kind of really horrible kind of battle that's going on in the well-being space about should we be measuring well-being? Um, and it's a kind of very um, un uncomfortable discussion. But, you know, where we get to is most schools are measuring well-being so that there's a tension focus there because otherwise it doesn't get funding, doesn't get, you know, awareness. Um, and, and parents or students or teachers only focus on academic performance because, you know, because we're not measuring the other stuff, the well-being stuff, we're not measuring it, therefore it doesn't matter as much, you know, so it's a really uncomfortable, oh, awful, and I don't, I don't know how it plays out ultimately. Um, and I think in the US, maybe uh, we're seeing this more and more, the measurement of well-being, that really increasingly sophisticated measurement of well-being, you know, um, for the purpose of allocating funding there. So, uh, you know, oh, it's a really un uncomfortable space. But yeah, that's that's a weird thing to to think about. I haven't thought of it. By measuring it, does it make it more meaningful for kids? I mean, once yeah. we measure attendance, kids are more likely to attend, although some are going to rebel against that and say, screw you, I'm never going to win this game, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> and well, so we, I wonder if, if by yeah. measuring well-being, we make it more yeah. meaningful for kids. Well, I've got to do that. We've but at certainly... the same time, how many are going to just opt out of it and go, yeah. well, screw it. I'm never going to be certainly... number one when it comes to hope and belonging. Yeah. So I'm just going to quit altogether. Yeah, like, I right. don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is well, a scary well, thing. Yeah, that's, that's dystopia, you know, in a different way. Um, so, guys, every once in a while, a conversation comes up on my Twitter feed uh, talking about various, you know, we call them behavior management systems, um, which 
seems like a scary term in and of itself sometimes. Um, but things like class craft is an example. Um, class dojo and, and the like. Um, the question tends to come down to whether these systems actually work long term. Your chapter on rewards talks about exactly this, the efficacy of offering students incentives or rewards for behaviors or outcomes. Um, the, the research is pretty clear, actually, about a lot of this. When the rewards stop, the outcomes stop. And th that being said, though, I, I could pop on Twitter right now. I could go onto my Twitter and, and ask people how effective they thought Classcraft was in their classroom. And I would get overwhelmingly positive feedback. Yeah. I'm telling you I would. So what's the balance here? Um, where do you see rewards and behavior management working? And in what contexts and, and how is it effectively applied? David, you want to kick it off? Yeah, it's... It I, th I think it's an important word, Mark, I think, around balance. Um, I think the question, I, I, for me, it comes back to that question of QE Bono, who wins? Like, why why are we applying these processes? Um, and, and I think ultimately when we genuinely ask that question or we force a teacher to sit down and answer that question really deeply and honestly, rewards are often about compliance. It's about control, right? It's about coercion. Um, I, I think I think rewards have a place to play if they can be used to stimulate um, an interest in an area, maybe to tr genuinely try to develop intrinsic motivation, to expose students to things that maybe they are unwilling to try otherwise, perhaps. I, I think there are, is certainly a role for rewards, but unfortunately, when, when they're used as a form of compliance or behavioral control or behavioral coercion, what we see in the literature dating back to, to Skinner, you know, dating back 70 years is that they absolutely work. Rewards absolutely work. They are very powerful. A little bit like grades. You know, grades are a form of reward, right? They are very, very powerful in the short term, but they undermine long-term long motivation. And, and this is this is the real problem. Not only do they undermine long-term motivation, um, but there's harmful effects on well-being that have been demonstrated. Um, and they don't generalize, you know. So outside of your very specific context, um, rewards don't generalize very well. So there's a whole host of problems that we start to see when we think bigger outside of our um, 9 p.m. math class with those 25 kids rewards work awesome there but as soon as you take it one step back and two steps back 10 steps back we see the problems emerging with rewards so that question i want your your people on twitter to, to answer is why are we using these tools and uh, is there a bigger long-term perspective being applied and if there's a genuine answer to that let's have that conversation but let's also be very aware of the downside as well yeah if you if you think about like class craft and stuff and, and behavior management works in that context in that situation so i wouldn't be shocked that people say hey i've used this and it worked well in my class cool the question is does it work well in the next class <laughs> does it work mm. well the next year and the answer there is no you can't train – you can train behavior in a context. You cannot train a generalizable behavior outside of that context using rewards. So we see this all the time. When kids use – if you use a behavioral management system in morning classes, afternoon classes, kids aren't going to act that way. And when you stop using it, kids go back to normal. So it's a great – rewards are a phenomenally powerful tool 
to change behavior. It's just, yeah, like David's saying, what's your longer term view on this? Is it, was it doing the class before, the class after, next year, when they graduate? And maybe, and frankly, I, I totally buy this answer, maybe you don't care. I don't care. I will mm. use behavioral management in my class because I need my kids to do work with me. And next year when they're in, I don't, I don't care if they're acting up for the next teacher. I don't know that person. I don't know. I work at a university, so I don't know. I don't know who you're going to work with next. And frankly, if you're a nightmare to them, go be a nightmare I, all day. I bet. I bet class. if teacher were being teachers were being honest with themselves, that would be a that would be a real answer. I, I, <laughs> I, so I don't in, doubt in it. which case behavioral management works an absolute treat. It's just now once you start thinking, what are the what are the broader themes, and then the longer term ramifications, like David was saying. When I learn to do something via rewards, I never am intrinsically motivated to do that thing again. It always just remains a reward-based system for so me, that, even yeah. when I come to internalize that behavior. And I make that – and I, David, tell the, the story of, of um, your friend who's, who's mm -hmm. always early because of military yeah. training. And I think that's a great example of internalizing something but still never really owning that. Thing. Yeah. This is a concept um, called um, organismic – integration theory you have to be careful when you say that especially at six o'clock in the morning but it's uh, <laughs> uh at dc and richard ryan's uh concept and this is that um what we sometimes see sometimes an argument for rewards is this that um if you want a child to learn algebra and they don't like algebra and they don't want to do math homework but you pay them with grades or rewards or a prize or money or whatever and you think we're joking about money there's a couple of examples in the book of huge huge amounts of money that are literally being paid to kids in cash to learn to read and it's scary mm. but let's say we want to pay a child to learn algebra so we give that child a sticker um, and they do their math homework and then tomorrow night we have to give them two stickers to learn the math homework eventually we give them a chocolate and eventually we bribe them with grades or whatever and actually they develop kind of this interest in doing algebra because we've paid them and they've been exposed to algebra long enough that they internalize this kind of um, process by which they they reward themselves for doing algebra it feels part of the you know completing the homework becomes part of who they are they become a, a the type of human who completes their homework that we've trained them to complete their homework right and what dc and ryan say in the theory is this becomes internalized as a kind of internal reward process um that it becomes associated with our character i'm the type of person who completes my homework but really that's still an extrinsic kind of character motivation you know they, they never learn to in, uh, internally love doing math they do it because they don't want to feel punished because they've gone against the type of person they think they are yes yeah, so i've got a friend who, who always turns up always turns up early to meetings he's always five minutes early um and mm -hmm. he was in the military and he was trained to do that and so he part of his character and he talk, kind of talks about this he he says if you're five minutes early to to a meeting you're late is what he says if you're five minutes early you're late He's always on time. He prides himself on being on time. He doesn't, he doesn't actually enjoy, though. He doesn't enjoy being on time. He gets rewarded by his kind of internal character because it's consistent with the type of person he thinks he is. And he's been drilled so much extrinsically. So what we can see is an illusion of intrinsic motivation caused by rewards, but it's not a genuine uh, motivation. And, and as Jared said, what we continually see in the literature 
is the undermining effect or the crispy effect or whichever phenomenon you want to look at. The, the, the bottom line is this, that external rewards kill intrinsic motivation. As soon as you start paying kids or humans with extrinsic rewards, you kill off intrinsic motivation and then you've got to permanently keep paying kids or hope that this kind of internal process occurs. But but yeah, there are some really, really devastating long-term effects of, of rewards. And that's what we just want to expose teachers to. And then if they still want to use grades or rewards or money or cash or chocolates, fine, go. But let's really understand yeah. what's happening, mechanis- uh, you know, the mechanism underlying all of this first. I think it's a good point with this book is we try to teach the why, not the what, ultimately, mm. is a concept of, of if you just know, if you know the underlying method or philosophy of grades, if you know the underlying mechanisms of uh, rewards or starting a class at 8 a.m. or having a one hour set. Just know why these things exist. And once you know why they exist, then you can make more specific decisions on how you want to use them or whether or not you want to change them or not. It was kind of what you were saying earlier, Glenn. So one of the best things I've, I've heard about some of these things is teachers will say, they'll read one of these chapters and they'll say, that's it. You put it into words what I've been thinking. Now I have a narrative for it that I can use to pass along to other people to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's yes. what I kind of think this is, is once you know why, once you have a narrative for these things, then you can decide how it is you want to play with them. And if you choose to keep mm. playing with them, go to town. Just address the narrative. And if you choose to not, cool. Use the narrative to, to tweak it another way. There's no right or wrong, ultimately. But it's have if you, if you don't know why, then all we're doing is just talking about form. We're just talking about yeah. action. We're just talking about what do I do and no longer about function. Why are we doing any of these things? Well, this was one of the best conversations we've had. So we're going to have to have you guys back because uh, there's more to discuss. I mean, there's 10 chapters in the book. Uh, but for now, how can teachers connect with you online, uh, each of you, and then where direct us to where we can purchase your book? Yeah, so the, the book is 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. And it's available everywhere online. If you go to Amazon, if you go to to Booktopia or any of those play, it's, it's all online. Um, and then also, if you, it, my website is lmeglobal.net. Um, so if you take a look there, there's some good book material there. There's some videos online there as well and some course stuff. And David, how about you? Yeah, we, we, I'm enjoying having lots of conversations on Twitter as well. Jared and I are having some some really fun conversations with educators. So uh, probably best to connect with me at, at David Bot uh, at Twitter. Um, and Jared is J.C. Horvath. So, so get involved. We've had a really interesting conversation last week about expert. What do expert teachers do differently to, to normal teachers or rookie teachers? So that's been causing some fun. So, yeah. So thank you so much for the conversation, Mike and Glenn. It's been really, really fun to hang out with you guys. Yeah, thank you, guys. Amazing. Uh, Jared, David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This is Ava Gay-Blackford, another facilitator within the Teach SDGs community. I believe that education is the most powerful force to encourage human rights and dignity, to wipe out poverty and strengthen sustainability, to build a better future for all. I think others should join this community because it creates a support network for members and serves as a global gathering place for teachers to share stories and support one another as we all figure out what learning looks like during the current global pandemic. 
To access hundreds of resources about the global goals and to connect with almost 1,000 educators around the world, join the free Teach the Global Goals community. Visit go.participate.com slash global goals to get started. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.